0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. This podcast brings us to our ninth installment of our popular participant reading series, The Draft. This round's draftees put the U in voyeur and included nonfiction writer Kate Rosen, fiction writer Laurel Kallenbach, poet Kim O'Connor, and fiction writer Mary Brown.
1: Thanks for coming to the Draft 9.0. I'm Mike Henry, I'm the uh, accidental executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Um, thanks for being here. Uh, this, is the, this is 9.0, right? 9.0. 9.0. Uh, so uh, the Draft 9.0, uh, a- Andrew, the program director who's over back there, who's just a wonderful and really cute person, give her a hand. Yeah, thank you. What are you doing later? <laughs> My voice cracked. That was really bad. <laughs> I'm so smooth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, she was really aggravated at something that um, we did a survey a couple years ago, and uh, we asked, "Why do you take workshops?" You know, we asked anybody who t- had taken workshop in like the last fifty billion years, and um, the quality of the writing and uh, the quality of the writing in the workshop was like number five in the list, and that really bothered her. So she devised this plan of. Uh, celebrating the good and amazing writing that's in the workshop. So she came up with the draft. So what happens is instructors draft some of their students to read, and each time it's on a different theme. We've had various themes like, um, oh, I can't remember, bad ideas. Bad ideas. What else? Um, Anyone? Buyer beware. buyer beware. Caveat emptor. Yeah. So tonight, I'm very excited about it. It's. Um, the you in voyeur. Did you know that? That's, that's what it is tonight? Are you all looking at me? Um, and, of course, what voyeurism means to me... Um, <laughs> Besides that short time I spent in uh, juvenile detention, uh, is I I'd always picture Jimmy Stewart in the Rear Window, and then of course I picture Grace Kelly, and I picture her coming over for a sleepover. And do you remember what she came in? She goes, I, "I'm all ready for my sleepover," and she has this tiny, <laughs> tiny little suitcase with her with her nightgown in it. Do you, you remember that? And Jimmy's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta watch out. What's going on?" Uh, <laughs> So uh, the tagline here is that voyeurism doesn't have to be creepy, but isn't it nice when it is? <laughs> Again, the beer and the wine, help, help yourself. So uh, we have a great lineup of readers, and I'm very excited. Um, first up, we have um, uh, a, a longtime instructor uh, for us. She's been teaching us, f- teaching at Lighthouse for, I don't know, 10 years. She started when she was 7 years old. Um, a really good friend, an amazing writer, and one of our most popular teachers, uh, Sherry Codron. And she's going to introduce Kate Rosen. So give it up for Sherry.
2: Thank you, Mike. The quality of workshops was number five. (laughs) We have to work on that. Um, Hi. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce Kate Rosen um, as our first reader tonight. I tend to fall in love with all my students, um, but I have to say there's a special place in my heart for Kate. Uh, if there was poster children for Lighthouse, I think Kate would be one of them. Um, you've been around for a year and a half or so, right? She's just fabulous in a workshop she is supportive of the other writers she's uh, just smart about story she's articulate and she's writing a fabulous story herself she's working on a memoir about being a dancer in a strip club and I think it's safe to say I'm not the only one who gets really excited when Kate is submitting (laughs) laughter and not because of the subject matter, people. Uh, it's because she's, she's a terrific writer. One of the things most memoirists and writers of personal narrative in general struggle with is developing themselves as a character and being really honest about their thoughts and emotions at the time of an experience. And Kate is fabulous at that. I mean, it takes a lot of bravery to do that. And she does it exceedingly well, which you'll see here tonight. Uh, the section she's going to read is from... Uh, It's early on in the memoir, right? She had been dancing at her first club called Crazy Girls in Hollywood. And some of you, if you ever watch Entourage, that's the same club that's featured on there. She'd only been there about six months at that time. Um, And the memoir, the working title is Why I Dance, Ten Years as a Misfit Stripper. So help me welcome Kate Rosen.
3: Thank you, Sherry. (laughs) I was wearing my new pleather bikini the night I met John. It was shimmering jade green with miniature shorts and a glittery belt that made me feel like a Bond girl once I had a few drinks in me. He came in early, though, before I was warmed up and in the game, when I was still just regular old Kate, all gussied up as a stripper. He caught my eye right away with his strong features, classic suit, and a nice high forehead that extended all the way up and over his head. (laughs) What can I say? I have a thing for ball guys. (laughs) I perched myself one stool away from him, far enough to signal that I wasn't hustling, but that it was a distinct possibility. Hustle doesn't sound good, but let me explain. To hustle is simply to converse with a profit motive. It's what every exchange with a customer in a strip club is, or at least should be. I flagged down Gary, the surly Armenian bartender, and ordered a doer's on the Rocks. Whiskey, huh? said the man in the suit. And taking that as a sign, I scooted over to sit right next to him. His name was John, he was a lawyer, and he lived in Chicago. I like Chicago, I replied, sipping my drink. Aside from that whole interminable winter thing. Yes, he agreed, that does make the L.A. part more palatable. I see you're interminable, I imagined him thinking, mildly surprised, and I'll raise you a palatable. (laughs) I smiled, knowing that any iota of wit or insight was magnified tenfold when uttered by a girl wearing more glitter than clothing. I was only average at Smith College, but here I felt like a goddamn genius. You want another, he asked, gesturing to my drink. I did, the pours were short at crazy girls. Then he handed me two $20 bills, neatly folded. I know there are other people you could be talking to, he explained, and I don't want to waste your time. Thank you, I said, without jumping up and down or anything, hoping to convey that men frequently gave me money for nothing. <laughs> but really, my heart leapt. I had heard tales of customers paying hundreds of dollars for the privilege of buying you a steak dinner. But here at Crazy Girls, there was no steakhouse, and conversation was basically a sales pitch for a private dance. It wasn't an end in itself. But this, this was fantastic, talking with an attractive man and getting paid for it. If I played my cards right, he could be a fantastic regular. The problem was, I didn't want a regular, never had. I wanted a boyfriend. I wanted someone who thought I was awesome and special and wouldn't be phased when he discovered that I only looked like I had my shit together when compared to the typical stripper. But that, that I didn't like to reveal so quickly. That would be immediately obvious if I were to reveal my apartment, for example, with its piles of clothing and crumb-coated plates peeking from beneath the couch. But he didn't need to know about that. Not now, not here. I touched the plain gold band on his right hand. I thought that went on the other hand, I said. I'm divorced, he explained. Ah, so you still wear your ring, you just switch sides. (laughs) Interesting. That's not the word my girlfriend would use, he replied. No, I don't imagine it would be. He laughed, and so did I. It was nice, to be honest. A relief, I think, for both of us. It always felt better when Truth joined the conversation, even at Crazy Girls, where it was viewed with some suspicion. Truth was the life of the party, even when it wasn't invited, and now that it had made an appearance, anything could happen. Gary poured again, and John handed me two more 20s. Soon he'll see me dance, I thought, with a rush of excitement. I knew that some customers, especially ones I had a connection with, almost dreaded seeing me on stage, Dreaded seeing this girl, who at this point it feels like he knows, taking off her state, off her clothes in public. I used to get mad when they wouldn't watch, until it occurred to me that averted eyes might be a sign of respect, not disregard. I forgot that many people think stripping is fundamentally sad, and that showing your body for money is a shame. But that's why I was there, to dance, finally, on a stage of my own. It was the whole reason I had come to Crazy Girls in the first place. I didn't want John to avert his eyes, so I made him promise to watch me before I took my place behind the velvet curtain. As the DJ announced my entrance, I allowed the come-hither song I'd chosen to work its magic before I revealed myself. Look, look, it whispered as I took the stage. I'm not like those other women, the normal ones, with their careers and their 401ks. Can they do this, I ask, as I shed my clothes in a way that I know is graceful, not sad. So what if I haven't made my movie? So what if I'm lying to my parents about how I pay my bills? I'm here now, alive in my skin, and everyone who sees me here feels it. I know this is true. I know it. I look at John, who is watching. He knows. He sees. When the song ends, I collect my tips and return to his side. I don't need a compliment, but he gives me one just the same, and $60, too. We continue our conversation, but we've sunken deeper into it now. And I'm thinking, this is him, this is the guy. We're just talking, that's all. But here, in this trashy club, the chaste normalness of it feels magical. I know he'll ask for my number and that I'll see him again. And then suddenly, the house lights go on and it's over. I pay my fees and tip out quick as I can so he won't have to wait. But when I return, he's leaving, he's actually walking out the door. I know what's going on. I know he doesn't want to be that guy who thinks the stripper actually likes him. And I understand. I'm not worried. I just want to catch him before he's gone. So I do something so unthinkable, it's not even a rule, because who would leave the club and dash into the actual world wearing only a pleather bikini? (laughs) I would. I do. I slip through the curtains and call his name. He turns, surprised, and steps towards me. Don't you want my number? I ask. He smiles and I hand it to him. I hand him the folded napkin with my number on it. Then he leaves. And that's it. The napkin is never unfolded. He doesn't call. Six months later, I had abandoned the pleather bikini for a tiny burgundy skirt and matching top that suited me much better. I had just returned from the VIP room and was feeling pollen rich in a field full of bees. With practice ease, I began to hustle the guy next to me. He seemed smart. He was well-dressed and bald, and suddenly his face shifted into focus. It was him. It all came back. I remembered everything. He couldn't believe it. Who would think a stripper would remember all those details from all those months ago? And who would think that he would have kept that folded napkin in his wallet the whole time as he confessed he had done? We were both so pleased to find each other again, so surprised, and this time he didn't leave. He stayed until I was released. And then, as I waited for the valet to get in my car, he kissed me, just like that, like in a movie. He said he'd be back in a month, and I was counting days. I knew better, of course, than to think he'd actually show up 30 days later on the nose. So when I left the dressing room that night, I didn't expect to see him there at the bar, waiting for me so early in the evening. But there he was. I hadn't danced yet, hadn't had a drink, wasn't warmed up at all. And whereas last time, the surprise had been one of delight, this time it was the crash of expectations into reality. Surprise! He had looked better in a suit than he did in a a bulky Gap sweatshirt. Surprise! He was nervous and awkward, which he hadn't been before. Surprise! He was a little more drunk than I remembered him being. (laughs) Wanting to catch up, I downed my doers with notable speed, willing him to become as handsome as he had been before. But it was too late. I had seen it, the rim of a plate peeking from beneath his couch. I didn't want him to have plates under his couch. I'd want him to be perfect, more perfect than I was. And I realized that I'd wanted him, oh God, it was true, to save me. Because I was getting tired of working late nights in a bar, tired of living a life fueled by booze and illusion. I had wanted us to wake up early and drink coffee together, working side by side on our laptops, both pursuing ambitious yet attainable goals. (laughs) But I was relieved when he called the next night to cancel our plans for dinner. It was over. We both knew it. If he hadn't been what I hoped for, at least he wasn't what I would have hated. He wasn't a jerk or a player, He hadn't tried to seduce me for sport. He was just a person in a strip club looking for something that wasn't available in the real world. And if he was susceptible to illusion and to the heady promise of romance, well, then that, at least, was a foible we shared.
1: Thank you, Kate. Amen. Next up, the instructor um, is uh, Erica Krauss, and unfortunately, she can't be here tonight, so I'm going to pretend to be Erica and introduce our next reader. And I have some notes. Erica sent me some notes, so I'm just going to read those. She wouldn't read them, she would just say them, but so uh, it's not a very good imitation, so I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Laurel Collenbach never brags about herself, so it's only by accident that we discovered that she's a freelance magazine writer and a talented bassoonist with the Longmont Symphony Orchestra. I don't know if I've ever really seen a real bassoon up close. Is it a woodwind or is it a? It's a woodwind. Yeah, yeah, woodwind. Yeah. It's not a brass. Woodwind. Where? There you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. I digress. Ooh, fancy. There's a joke there, but I'm not even, I can't even. She has a gift for surprising fiction that constantly ups the ante. Her graduate studies in poetry inform her lyrical narrative and her skillful, skillful imagery, and tonight you'll hear from her novel in progress called Tornado Season. Please welcome the prov- provocative and courageous Laurel Kallenbach.
4: the last time I did a literary reading I didn't need reading glasses (laughs) Um, my novel Tornado Season takes place in Louisville, Kentucky um, during the mid-70s the two main characters are best friends and they're both 12 years old in this scene that I'm about to read Donna is a Catholic um, girl from a blue-collar family, she has nine siblings and she was born in Louisville um, Carla is a minister's daughter, and she grew up in Massachusetts before her father got a job in Kentucky. The scene I'm going to read um, takes place two days before court-ordered school desegregation busing um, was, begins, and that was in 1975 in Louisville, and the city is in complete turmoil. And on this night, um, Donna has just sneaked over to Carla's house to take her to see a Ku Klux Klan rally that Donna heard about. It's held in a field behind a tobacco warehouse just on the opposite side of Carla's church. The musky smell of drying tobacco engulfed the girls as they hid in the tall weeds along the side of the tobacco warehouse. It smelled like the Kentucky woods after a rain, only sweet like perfume. Carla nervously scrunched up her toes inside her soggy sneakers and poked her head around the warehouse's corrugated metal corner. At the far side of the field, a group crowded around a bonfire. Someone had set up a cross. We'll glide over real casual so nobody notices, said Donna. Then we just blend right in. (laughs) Carla felt dizzy and giddy all at once. This is crazy. Well, we can't hear nothing from way back here in the boonies. Carla swallowed hard and watched Donna step into the field toward the bonfire. She trained her flashlight back toward the churchyard. The steeple, silhouetted against the overcast night sky, looked cold and unfamiliar. She punched the flashlight's off button and followed as if the fire were sucking her forward. As the girls came closer, Carla's resolve thinned, like the film of clouds between her and the slender moon. But she couldn't turn back. Donna walked on, and Carla followed, trance-like. She noticed the crowd looked pretty normal, men in regular shirts and pants, women in dresses. "'You said this was the clan. That's what the flyer said, KKK, they're probably not here yet, so just hold your horses, Donna said. Carla glanced at a father balancing a toddler on his shoulders. Well, at least we look like everybody else. You're sure this isn't one of those Baptist revivals? The girl stood on the edge, feeling the crowd's anticipation. Then the forest of people shifted a few inches, and Carla spotted a man in a white robe with a pointed hood over his face. There were vacant black holes where his eyes should be, and he seemed to stare straight at them. Donna clutched Carla's hand. "'Holy shit!' "'Shh!' said Carla. The hooded man's dark eye holes felt like bottomless pits. Every hair on her head tingled. Her face and throat were on fire." The man must have been there the whole time, hidden by the people clustered around him. The man held up both of his hands, extending his fingers to form a pair of Ws. He slowly turned in a circle, shouting, White, victory! White, victory! The cl- crowd took up his chant and began to sway. Once the hooded man faced away from them, Donna exhal- Carla exhaled. Without his inhuman stare, she felt less like she was plummeting into darkness. She snuck a a look at a woman near her. The woman's hands were on her hips, and her elbows jerked up and down in rhythm with the chanting. Another voice began shouting. The girls couldn't hear what it said, but the crowd changed its words. Keep our schools pure and safe. Stop busing. The sound rose in pitch as the voices became angrier. I can't breathe, Carla said. Her throat burned from the smoke and tightened in fear. What if someone sees me, she thought. She bent double, gasping. Then an even worse thought choked her. What if someone from my church is here? She imagined having to sit in the same pew with them, sharing a hymnal while they sang, shoulder to shoulder. She wanted to hide on the ground, to become invisible. Donna leaned over her. Can you believe this? Carla shook her head. Whoa, look! Carla stood up. Donna had honed in on another hooded man, who was lighting a torch in the bonfire. The short white cape over his shoulders tilted as he raised his arm and held the burning torch to the cross. For the first time, Carla noticed that the cross was wrapped mummy-style in burlap. The torch flame licked at the fabric, then spread up the cross and along its horizontal arms. The crowd surged backwards as flames leapt into the night sky and kerosene-scented smoke billowed. The field undulated with light and dark, flashes of color and flickers of talk. For a second, Carla wanted to run. She could feel Donna startle and shy away too. Yet they remained transfixed. Carla clamped her eyes shut against the smoke, but the image of the cross burned inside her eyelids. After the haze settled, Carla opened her eyes. Another white-robed man stood near the cross. His hood was rolled up to reveal his face, and his eyeglasses reflected the fire, throwing splotches of bright light on the faces of the people near him. He held up his hands to signal for silence. Then he spoke quietly too soft for the girls to hear. The man tilted his head back and smiled, and a few people chuckled politely, nodding their heads in agreement. The breeze shifted again, and Donna pushed Carla along the edge of the crowd to where the air was fresher. They could see better, too. The quiet man's voice grew bolder, as if fueled by the licking flames. Brethren, I want to share with you a few scientific facts, he said. I have come to Louisville to tell you the truth. Niggers are intellectually inferior to whites, the crowd murmured. I see with terrible sadness the same tragedy played out here in Kentucky that I watched in my dear home in Atlanta. Oh, Lord, the niggers have turned Atlanta into a jungle like they did in Africa. The word nigger made Carla flinch but the way the man talked was mesmerizing. She recognized his cadences. They sounded like the rhythmic persuasion of a preacher speaking the gospel, telling his flock a nice Bible story, like Daddy, but with a southern accent, she thought. She searched the faces of the people around her, their eyes ignited. They leaned toward the man, they might have been in a church instead of a vacant lot beside a ramshackled tobacco warehouse. Then she looked over at Donna. Please don't let Donna be like them. Donna was still. She chewed her lip. Their eyes met. Then Donna looked at her feet. The Klansmen continued, This scourge must stop somewhere, and oh, brothers and sisters, it might as well be here in Louisville. Our ancestors are rolling in their graves, because our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will not be white, will not be white, if we do not fight this now. Clapping and cheers erupted. Then the tip of one of the cross's arms crumbled. The burned-through glowing embers swung for a moment in the noose of burlap before it, too, incinerated. People sprang back to dodge the falling flames. Carla yanked Donna's arm. We have to get out of here. This place, it's... it's damned. They whirled around to flee when another hooded figure loomed before them. This one was short and wore a white flower sack tied over his head. The Klansman thrust a pamphlet at Donna. Here you go, little girls, he said. His voice was muffled. The sack didn't even have a hole for the mouth. But he sounded young, not at all hoarse and low the way Carla expected. Donna stood staring at the offered hand and the paper it clasped. The man wore jeans with a Confederate flag patch on the knee. Carla frowned, struggling to remember. Something about him was familiar. And then he laughed. The sound set lightning toward, through Carla's brain. She tried to see the man's face, but the tiny eye slits showed nothing. Go on, take it, said the voice. You stupid girls might learn something useful for a change. Shaking, Donna took the pamphlet between her fingertips and stared at it. Then she threw back her head, sucked in her cheeks, and unleashed an explosion of spit at the flower sack face. Without waiting for him to react, Donna seized Carla's arm and ran, dragging Carla along. Carla's legs pumped faster than they'd ever gone before. They raced away from the crowd, from the fiery cross, from the kerosene smoke. Their lungs screamed for oxygen, but they pushed mercilessly faster. Darkness drowned them as they reached the tobacco warehouse. They startled a sleeping blackbird in the goldenrod. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, said Carla, as they staggered along, calves burning, rib cages heaving like the gills of suffocating fish. When they reached the churchyard, they fell to their knees in the cold grass gasping Jesus said Donna Jim she ground the crumpled leaflet into the dirt panting Carla reached into her pocket for her flashlight it was gone she envisioned the mouth speaking from under its white sack the eyes finding her flashlight who was that Donna clenched her side and rolled onto her back she groaned you saw him right The flag on his jeans, Jim. Jim who? Donna stared at her like she was insane. My brother, fucking Jim.
1: Thank you, Laurel. I want to start a chant. Write victory, write, because we're writers. Okay, probably bad. All right, next up is um, Kim O'Connor, who's going to read some poetry. And um, Chris Rancic, uh, she's in the master class. And Chris Rancic, um, former Denver Poet Laureate, um, is the person who drafted her. He um, he emailed me this morning and said he's in a parking lot um, outside of a casino in Arizona but he's okay. Um, so uh, I, I got two, two blurbs, one from Martha Kalin, who's one, one of um, Kim's fellow students. Then I have something from Chris, which I'll read. Kim's poems vividly and deeply portray the details of family, relationships, and the landscapes they live and interact within. Her poems leave me with dreamlike sensations of having met some of these people, recollections of Auburn, curls, deep lakes, and deeper secrets, cantaloupes, feathers, dolls, funny portraits of people and their politics. Mother-daughter, granddaughter, great-granddaughter relationships weave strongly throughout, and I love how these relationships are revealed through texture, images, and stories. Here's what Chris had to say. The voice in Kim's work ranges from elegant to mischievous, provocative to comforting, whether it whispers intimacies in your ear or reaches down generations to connect women along a maternal line. Please welcome Kim O'Connor.
5: Thank you. I picked out five of my most voyeuristic poems. So. <laughs> the first one's called On Rereading, Leaves of Grass. And um, I'll just say the me in it is my middle school me. So. On Rereading, Leaves of Grass. I remember it was the book Bill Clinton gave Monica Lewinsky when all that was going on. The AM DJs and my social studies teacher kept snorting about cigars, stained dresses, My cheeks grew warm when they mentioned it, as they did when the girls on the bus giggled as I passed. Ketchup smeared on my face, maybe, from lunch, which was hot dogs, how awful. Eating a popsicle banana starting to mean something, started to mean something, something I connected with Becky Brady's hickey, the cherry Kool Aid colored spiderweb edged circle under her left ear. The math teacher didn't stir behind his newspaper when she walked out of class to dart across Highway 9 to the red dirt worksite where her boyfriend dug ditches. What confused me more than the jokes was how everyone hated Hillary Clinton, that bitch my father'd spit at the TV when she appeared. Her blonde professional bob, her tired eyes, reminded me of the school secretary whose husband came to my mother's beauty shop twice a month. Less for a haircut, she'd sigh later, than to flit and flirt around. He'd hurl himself at her, lips pursed. She'd place her flattened palm against his chest and say, no, Joe, and see you later. He was a good tipper. None of this was I to repeat to the school secretary or to anyone at school, ever. So many men seemed to love my mother, her auburn curls framing her smile. The summer before seventh grade, one sat waiting for his haircut, slouching, knees wide, his shorts loose and I saw a bald, pinkish tip of flesh pointing toward me, something like the elbow of a pale, fat baby. (laughs) I kept sneaking glances until he got up to pay, then stole to the back room to wait him out among dusty Clairol boxes, blue plastic perm rods, and decide whether to tell my mother what he'd done, or what I'd seen, or what I'd done. For years, I thought Tricky Dick was Clinton's nickname. (laughs) In Hillary's autobiography, she tells the story of a bad haircut her mother once gave her, the fake braid she wore to school, the boy behind her on the stairs who reached to pull it, and he yanked it right off and stood there with his mouth open, the long blonde shock of it clutched in his palm. (laughs) This next one um, is called My Grandmother Speaks of Beauty, and it's a poem I started writing about um, a memory I had of a cousin and a Barbie and a bear, but when I was, after I wrote it for a while, I realized I should write it from my grandmother's point of view. So, my grandmother speaks. My grandmother speaks of beauty. I should say it's, this is set in the South, in case you can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case. (laughs) My grandmother speaks of beauty. I could eat them with a spoon, Herman would say, every time he drove the tractor over and saw them playing on the red dirt bank. They'd climb up and up and slide down so fast they wore their palms raw, stopping. Suppose there was a pageant among them, he said. Which one would win? I snatched the corn he brought to give and sent him on. That afternoon, I found two of them stripped to their panties, kneeling over their toys, a naked Barbie on her back, pressed underneath a bear. What are you doing, I said. Keep this door open. My daughter's daughters. They blinked their eyes and didn't say a word. Suppose there was a pageant. Dark-haired girls, all apple-cheeked, eyes green as a lake. We put them in the fire truck for the Apple Festival Parade. Look at them wave and toss down their candy. We should have found a spoon while we could have done it. Now can a single one of them walk past the mirror without looking in it? Uh, This next one is called Sixth and G. Um, Those are the cross streets of the townhouse I lived in in Washington, DC, before I moved to Denver. So, you could see a lot of interesting stuff out on the street, and there was um, a man that always came by, and this is a poem about that. Sixth and G. He's out there weaving through cars. The dirty blue bathrobe's gone this time. His plaid shirt looks just iron, clean beyond clean, crisp. Red stripes crossing on white cotton, all right angles, sharp corners. Even when the light's green, he lurches toward cars, touches their windows. His screamings like singing. He's holding a tab tin of something. Peaches? I saw him eat them once, last summer, dipping his fingers into the can, fishing out wet tender crescents, holding them over his head, raising his mouth to them, dropping them in it. This poem has a long title, which probably explains the poem pretty well. I'll just say, not all of my poems, not very many of my poems have Hillary Clinton in them, but, <laughs> but this one also does. <laughs> um, so it's called, You can view a slideshow of politicians' wives standing by their husbands during a political crisis at npr.org. <laughs> and you really can't, it's still there. So. Even though a few of them, in a habit hard to break, are smiling at the camera, their faces share a kind of frozen, turn-to-glassness, mask-like. Here's Mrs. Edward Kennedy and the senator standing in the eye of a hurricane of reporters. Microphones pointed them like arrows. Next, Mrs. Marion Barry, I'm blinking behind her sunglasses, listens to the mayor, who has a white rose boutonniere pinned to his chest, answer questions about the crack he smoked, the ex-lover he smoked it with. Mrs. James McGreevy wins Miss Congeniality. She's almost beaming at the now ex governor's announcement that he's had an affair with another man. The next was snapped in profile, her chin lifted at an angle that suggests she is most likely to leave. And this one's most disgusted, the outer edges of her mouth turned down, as though she's just discovered what's been making that smell in the refrigerator. <laughs> this one stands shoulders back, head cocked to the side, eyes lifted to something higher than her sight line, as though she's posing for a wedding portrait. And here's a classic, Mrs. Clinton regarding Mr. President with an almost Mona Lisa smile. Her earrings are gold doves. The men men look earnestly at the audience, or cast their eyes downward during a pause in their speeches, or lower their eyebrows at a question they don't want to answer, or are caught with their hands outstretched in a kind of explanatory gesture. No matter what happens later, after all the apologies, the sudden outpouring of attention, and whether or not the iceberg of disbelief, disbelief in her chest is ever melted by a sudden blaze of anger. I suppose that each will eventually find herself in front of a mirror, noticing whatever there is to notice. A stray eyebrow unplucked, a gray strand catching the light from above the sink. No matter what one suspected, half-wondered, or willfully overlooked, the hope remained that one would be enough. And this last one is called The Fortune-Telling Book of Dreams. The title... I was in a gift shop with a friend and there was this little book, The Fortune-Telling Book of Dreams, and I didn't didn't read it. I just thought that would make a great poem, so it was fun to write. The Fortune-Telling Book of Dreams. A dream containing dogwood blossoms means you are questioning your religion. A dream in which you drive a Volkswagen Jetta up a river, as though the river were a road, indicates a general dissatisfaction with your daily routines. (laughs) But if it's raining and the drops don't splash in the water, you could simply desire a gift of some kind from your lover. Dreaming of marigolds that, go, that grow backwards from blossom to seed is a common dream that mirrors an inner need for a lost childhood pleasure, such as eating banana popsicles or reading in the branches of a magnolia tree. But dreaming of either of these is a warning that a time of loneliness is approaching. Trains in a dream mean someone is angry. Ships, or any voyage on the sea, suggest you are about to make a large purchase. But if you dream specifically of the Pacific Ocean, you are still mourning a loss you believed you had gotten over. If you dream you are shelling beans with your great-grandmother while everyone else, including your mother, is skinning a deer, you long to visit a place you never thought you'd want to go. If, If near the end of this dream, just after you sit down to eat, your family leans forward, toward you, as though they share the same body, and draws in a breath as though to speak. You should write down what they say, if you can hear it, because words spoken in a dream mean you are trying to remember something someone told you years ago.
1: Thank you, you, Kim. It was wonderful. Um, love that poem about the, the politicians' wives. And I've done this before, but I only have to say one thing. Oh, men. Um, I have to give a shout-out to the lovely Lynn Clark of Lynn Clark Photography, who's taking pictures for tonight. They will be on our Facebook page at some point in the near future. Um, it's come to my attention that Lynn has um, embarked on a new business venture with Lynn Clark Photography. She's doing boudoir photos so um, Kate if I could borrow your pleather your pleather bikini and maybe um, the KKK uh, hood I'm gonna I'm gonna schedule some time with Lynn I'm really excited what do you think it'll be great yeah exactly right (laughs) what did you say (laughs) fundraiser fundraiser they said fundraiser. I was like, oh. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm always trying to f- find the common theme between all the readers. That's why. Sometimes it's a little bit of a stretch. Okay. So last up, we have um, Marie Brown. Mari. I knew I was going to say that wrong. I've been practicing all night. Mari. Mari. I said, I said, Mari, Mari Andrea whispered. She said, just think rhymes with Atari. <laughs> so now you know how old I am. Uh, Mari Brown first took our fiction workshop. Oh, our, our fiction. This is um, also Erica Krauss. So channel, I'm channeling Erica Krauss, who's in Netherlands or somewhere. Yeah, we think. First, took our fiction workshop when she was six months pregnant, and then again when her son was just six and a half weeks old. It is a testimony to her creativity and determination that, besides a cute little tiny baby who's here, yeah, um, she was also crafting short stories during this time. She's the author of two plays. There goes, uh, which means that she's really good at typing with a baby strapped in a Bjorn, right? Yeah, yeah, I got, I got good at that with her daughters. Anyways. Uh, she was also crafting short stories during this time. She's the author of two plays, There Goes the Neighborhood and 23 Feet in 12 Minutes, The Death and Rebirth of New Orleans, which, both of which played in New York to critical acclaim. And she is hilarious. Please welcome the innovative and outrageous Mari Brown. <laughs>
6: Yes, I have that cute little baby here and a wonderful husband rocking him for like an hour straight. So um, I'm going to read the first half of a short story called David Kulintianos. I think I need reading glasses for the first time in my life. Um, Christopher had made his first splash with his lovely shit paintings. Gorgeous watercolors that depicted piles of excrement in soft pink, streamy purples, and vibrant reds. The only way you could guess the subject matter, they looked like sunsets, was by looking in the in the bottom right hand corner where Chris had painted a tiny photograph of the inspiration for the piece. An actual coil of shit his. Then he wowed his two D class with a series of huge hatchmark drawings of views from airplanes, recognizable only if you read the captions, UA five eight seven, San Francisco, Portland. He had triumphed at the spring art show, usually populated by seniors, with his air freshener series. Beautifully lush oil paintings of anal sphincters, all named things like Strawberry Breeze and New Money. He had had suspended actual air fresheners behind the paintings. The college paper snapped photos of people smelling his assholes. (laughs) Chris had watched from the sidelines, drinking box wine out of cheap, cloudy cups, sharing triumphant glances with his favorite professor, Martin. But this year, sophomore year, even though he didn't feel he was doing anything less creative, less risky, less clever, he was being ignored. A Lynn, the young freshman woman who painted baby pictures of Stalin and Hitler whose father, Sid Basher, was a world-renowned installation artist who had shown at the Venice Biennale once in 1981, was getting all the attention. Chris hated everything about Aelin. He hated her asymmetrical haircut, her sour green eyes, her scarves made of plastic piggly-wiggly bags. He hated her revisionist, feminist read of the history of photography. He hated the spelling of her name. He hated the way she never mentioned her famous father. He hated her blog posts about the FDA crackdown on kombucha. He hated that he couldn't stop himself from reading her blog. He hated that even though he would never touch her with a 10-foot pole, he had a recurring sex dream about her in which the two of them were linked for a year by an 8-foot rope like his favorite performance artists, Linda Montano and Teshing Shea. He hated that if he were to mention rope to her, she would know the piece. (laughs) He hated the power she held as lightly as a seed. He hated that she made him work harder but doubt the work itself. One Friday, the air slightly warm with the promise of spring, but mostly cold with the reality of Wisconsin, he was up for critique in class. It was this, he brought his newest work in progress, a sculpture of himself, currently headless, getting a hand job, a tentacle job, from an octopus. <laughs> his squinty eyed voyeurs in Drawing and Painting 101 gathered around the plywood table on which his torso and the octopus rested. A Lynn came uncomfortably close to his sculpture, closer than an art student should. Why are you headless, she asked. Chris waited for Martin to say, you can't assume the work is autobiographical. But Martin was completely silent watching Chris. I haven't gotten to the head yet, Chris told her, taking a step away from the work with the intention of showing her the proper distance from a piece of sculpture, but feeling instead as though he was scared of his own art. I don't think that's an accident, she said. (laughs) Again, Chris waited for Martin to jump in. Nothing. Well, why not, he said, his confidence turning like tea that is steeped too long. Because you're not brave enough to start with your head, with the real you, she said. You're hiding behind the concept. I'm not hiding behind the concept. I just haven't done the head yet, he said. (laughs) This is a juvenile fantasy, she said, and you're not proud enough to own it. He was stunned. I'm bringing the entire class to take a look at my naked body getting a hand job from an octopus? You think I'm not being brave? I think you're ashamed that this piece isn't all that original. Martin, Chris said with as much volume control as he could muster. What? Martin said in the what-me-worry tone of a pre-supper Judas. I think she's on to something. But she's not talking about the work, Chris spluttered, feeling like a 12-year-old in the wrong bathroom. She's talking around the work. You know, I'm not saying you don't have a big dick, a said. And then, archly, clearly, you do. Yeah. Well, he did have a big dick. He was a short man with a big dick, and he was a great artist, and she was totally out of line. Actually, she said, why don't you just show us your dick? He was so upset and confused and in need of impressing someone that he actually unbuckled his pants. The class freaked out. It just dissolved into gasps and cheers. Chris's face turned bright red. He threw the canvas cloth over the sculpture. He stormed out of the classroom, knocking into a paint dolly on his way out, slammed his fist into the wall across the hall. As he lit up a cigarette inside, he could clearly hear a faint, horsey voice saying, Wouldn't that actually rip his scrotum? <laughs> The next morning, Thursday, the state of Wisconsin decided to give a little, and the sun started breathing on the snow in a way that actually got results. The feeble bits of warmth inspired weather fever on campus, and suddenly students, still wearing wool hats, were ordering ice cream at the student union. The campus posters outside of the union were suddenly visible under the melting snow, and one in particular stood out, a huge 12-foot wraparound poster of a complex blue painting that said, David Kulintianos, Retrospective, 1983-95. The painting was crisp, bright, gnarly, and weird, done in entirely in one color, blue. It looked like the benign beginning of a nightmare, like Hieronymus Bosch working in Jello. Chris, on his way to get shitty hangover coffee at the student union, stopped and stared at it with admiration. There was something comforting about the way the painting was both beautiful and disturbing, as though the artist both loved and mocked his own psyche. As Chris walked to his sociology class early for once, he saw more and more of these posters. They were peppering the sides of the Lincoln walkway, and their utter blueness picked up a little bit of blue in the sky and made, and made Chris's spirits rise. Chris made a point of sharing his enthusiasm about the posters as a way of keeping it going. Have you seen those new David Culentiano's paintings, he asked at the start of class. The sociology teacher nodded, distracted. I think they're amazing, Chris said. Very blue, said the teacher. <laughs> I I heard that David Kulintianos was inspired by spring in Wisconsin, Chris said. That's what the MoMA catalog said. Right, uh, he lived here in the 70s, didn't he, the sociology teacher said? Okay, turn to page 34, Milgram Experiment. When Chris got to the ugly gray hallway in the Humanities Building where supposedly great things thrived, he saw Aylin coming out of Martin's office. She did not look happy. Chris was in such a great mood that he felt compassion for Aylin, and he gave her a little smile. Hey, he said... Hey, she answered like someone accidentally stepping on a cat and kept motoring. (laughs) Chris retained a smile and pushed open Martin's door. Chris, Martin said, mildly disapproving. Hey, Chris said, before you say anything, I just want to say I'm sorry. I know I was out of line. Martin visibly relaxed. I mean... I get where you were coming from, Chris, Martin said, but I just had to step in because Aylin didn't deserve to get yelled at like that. Yes, she did, Chris thought. No, she didn't, he said. And also, Martin lowered his voice. It's her dad. Chris could not believe he was really going to admit it. Yeah, he said, hoping Martin would go on. I mean, Martin said, he just gave $1 million to the art department. Chris's mood was still so buoyant that any disgust he would have felt for Martin was overcome by a Buddha-like compassion. Wow, said Chris, because that's really all he could think of to say. (laughs) I know, said Martin, it's repugnant, but in this economy, one million keeps me in a job and you in a class. Chris thought of the blue in the Kulintianos painting, and it worked like a drug. He forgave Martin for being a spineless poser. I get it, Chris said, amazed at his own magnanimousness. Anyway, I wanted to talk to you about Kulintianos. Yeah, what a great piece on that poster outside the Union, said Martin. It's from the MoMA retrospective, said Chris. Right, said Martin, vaguely. I guess I've been so busy I haven't paid attention to what's going on in New York. I love his interplay of the real and unreal, said Chris. So, so I know someone at MoMA, and I was thinking I, I could call him to see if he would come and speak here, since some of his paintings are based on his experience of springtime in Wisconsin. You really think he'd do it, said Martin? He's so big. I don't know, Chris said, a huge grin on his face, sensing his opportunity to again be a star. I guess it's up to him. A week later, after Chris worked some of his magic, yellow banners were on all of the Kulintianos posters announcing a speaking engagement at the spring art show. Suddenly, it was as though cholera had hit the pipes. All anyone talked about was David Kulintianos. Outside Farm and Fleet where all the cool art students went to get their installation materials and overalls. Two girls from his 20th century allegory class were arguing. I can't find anything about him at MoMA, one girl said. That's because he's anti-identity the other girl, (laughs) replied. The next day, at the Rathskeller, at the scuffed, beery table next to him, have you seen those those Kulantianos posters? They're about being gay in a straight world. At the saggy movie theater in the popcorn line, I can't believe we're getting someone as amazing as Kulintianos on campus. Maybe they've given up on the football team. (laughs) At the studio, all Chris could think about was David Kulintianos. He wondered what he wore, what he ate, what he was thinking. He wondered whether the blue in the posters were eyes, voyeuristic eyes that were staring so deeply into their audience that they transcended the audience. He wondered whether or not David Kulintianos, David Kulintianos had gotten slightly fatter while working in Wisconsin, as Chris had. Chris was having so much fun thinking about David Kulintianos that he almost forgot he had made David Kulintianos up. Thank you
1: Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Is that great talent or what let 's give him another round. Of that was really wonderful. Well done. well done.
0: Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.